All right. Does this work? Yes? Okay. Now, <coughs> as I said, we're talking about God's plan for the world. What is God's big plan for the world? In the light of the ongoing conflicts around the world, we're talking about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. We're talking also about the conflicts in Africa, uh, the drug wars in South America, the, the looming wars in Southeast Asia, and let's not forget the tiniest patch of land that's now having conflict, Israel and Palestine. With all these conflicts and wars, what is God's plan for the world? And most particularly the question is, how do I fit in God's plan for the world? The answer lies in Joshua chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to open Joshua chapter 11. But let me give you a quick recap so that we can put this in context. The book of Genesis, the first part, the first book of the Bible, opens with the story of Adam and Eve. And we all know Adam and Eve. And then series of names, and it jumps to uh, a person by the name of Abraham. You go to chapter 11 uh, of Genesis, and then chapter 12 centers on Abraham and his family. And then his family grew to become a nation we can now call Israel. Israel is what, you know, the country now in Israel is the same. But this, but this country after Abraham grew to a nation, and then time came that God allowed them to move away from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They populated again in the wilderness, and then they crossed the Jordan River, entered the Promised Land. It's called Canaan, or we can now call Palestine. But when they entered Canaan, it was inhabited by different tribes of people. These different tribes of people practice sorcery, they practice incest, they practice temple prostitution, they practice child sacrifice, and very heavy on magic and sorcery. And these are the very people whom God said that the Israelites must destroy. So the point is that what started in the Garden of Eden as God's dwelling place continued in the land of promise we called Canaan. Canaan is to become God's new residence. God's call it the promised land. He promised it to Abraham. He promises to his children, the sons of Israel. So whenever we hear or read the phrase promised land, it harks back to the fact that God promised Abraham, but it's not just a promise to Abraham. It is a promise for the whole world. It is a promise for the whole world because God wants to reach down to us. That means you and me. That means you Asians, Americans, and every nationalities of the world. Listen to this, Genesis chapter 12, 1, 2, 3. Let me read this for you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. See, to the land that I will show you, this is Canaan. This is what God wants Abraham to possess, the land of Canaan. And then he said in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. But then in verse 3, everything twists around. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. This goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden when God first made this curse to Adam and Eve. And then this is what he said. And in on you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what this means is that God is giving the land of Canaan to Abraham. It's not just to make him fat, healthy, and famous, but also so that God can bless the whole world. The point of God giving the promised land to Abraham is so that God can bless all the families of the earth. That's the whole point of it. So let's not just think 
that God just wants to bless Israel. In fact, in the Bible, God says he wants to bless all the families of the earth. But the question is, how will God bless all the families of the earth? How will God bless all the families of the earth through Abraham? And what does it mean for you and me? Now, this might seem counterintuitive, but God instructed the Israelites to drive out all the inhabitants in the land of Canaan. You, you see this. It's very counterintuitive. How would God bless all the people in the land when in the first place, he wants them to drive out all the inhabitants in the land? Here's the plan of God. The plan of God is to set up God's kingdom in Canaan, in Israel, where only Yahweh is worshipped. Because if the land of Canaan is to be God's new residence, therefore there's no competition. There should be no other gods that must be worshipped in the land of Canaan. And therefore only God, Yahweh, must be worshipped. And Israel must drive out all the defiant inhabitants in the land if God will be worshipped in the land. It's very interesting because last year I bought my house here in, in Florida. And the following what me, we moved here. It took us about nine months to find a house. You know, right now, it's very hard, very difficult to find a house. But after nine months, thanks to my agent, we, we bought the house, we closed the deal, we got it. But before, uh, two weeks before we moved, the seller of the house requested that they stay for another month. Now, that to me is a problem because at that time, number one, we were selling our house in Arizona. And number two, we are on a timeline. We have to move here with my family. So my dilemma is either I tell him, yes, he can stay for another month, but we become homeless, <laughs> or I say no, and we live together in the same house. So that to me is, is unacceptable. See, if Canaan is to become the new residence of God, then all the inhabitants of the land who are worshiping other gods, idols must go. They cannot stay in the same land together. And that's why it's very important that God instructed the Israelites to drive out all the inhabitants in the land. This is the reason why. You see, the land of Canaan was already granted to Abraham years before even Israel entered the promised land. The only thing is that the inhabitants of the land did not get the notice. And so when Israel entered the land and they started driving out the inhabitants of the land, all the inhabitants of the land reacted furiously. They will not give up their own land. Who in the right mind would do that? So Israel had to fight tooth and nail for every corner and inch of that land in order for them to get to that land. Joshua chapter 8 and 9 and 10 is about Joshua conquering the southern kingdom. Joshua chapter 11 talks about Joshua conquering the northern kingdom. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read to you the first five verses of chapter 11, and then I will give you the summary of the whole chapter. Are you ready? If you have your Bibles or cell phones or whatever, or uh, in the screen, you can follow me as I read, verses 1 to 5. It says, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, let me pause a minute, uh, what did he hear? He heard that Joshua conquered the southern kingdom. He heard also that Joshua crossed the Jordan River. He heard that he destroyed Jericho. He heard that Joshua also destroyed Ai. And then he defeated all the five kings, five kings in the southern kingdom. This is what Jabin heard. 
So when Jabed heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Maidon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshat, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in, in the Arabah south of Chilleroth, and in the lowland, and in the Napothdor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Now, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to ask you to memorize all these names. This is very tough. This is Mother's Day today, so let's just chill. All right, verse 4, this is the, I think, what's important here to understand this, uh, this sermon. Verse 4, it says, they came out with all their troops. How many? It says, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with the very many horses and chariots. So you remember, when God was promising Abraham that he will become a great nation, God said, look up to the stars, and your descendants will become as many as the stars in heaven and as the sand in the seashore. It's the same language God used here. The enemies of Joshua at this point is like the sand in the seashore. A lot. It reminds me, when you read the book of Revelation, there's the Armageddon. There's a war that all the nations of the world will fight against the people of God. As many as the seashore. And then it says in verse 5, All these kings joined their forces and came and, and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now this is very scary to begin with. And then it tells us all the details about the war in chapter 11. Now I want you to go by the summary of it. The summary is found in verse 23. Now I'd like you to understand the scale. This is uh, the description of how many are the enemies of Israel. Now, at the time when Israel, the Israelites entered Canaan, if we go by Numbers 26, the Bible would say that there are about less than 2 million people. I mean, 2 million people against all the, the chariots and the horses and the hordes that were brought about by in verse 5, verse 4 and verse 5. The population of Miami today, 2021 and 2022, is about 6 million people. So that means only one-third of the population of Miami is the population of Israel during the time that Joshua was attacking Canaan and the enemies. You understand how difficult it is for Joshua to do this. That's why God keeps on saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous for I am with you. Because if God is not with them, they will not be able to conquer the land. And here's the summary in verse 23 of the, the entire campaign. It says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This is the one statement summary of chapter 11. And the land had rest from war. Let's go back to the question. What is God's plan for the world? And how do I fit in God's plan for the world? It says... And the land had rest from war. We also ask the question, how will God bless the peoples of the earth, all the families of the earth, if in fact there was war? Do you remember when God was, has started to create in Genesis, the six days of creation? you remember that? Yes? Six days of creation. And I'm not expecting you to memorize all the you know, creation order, the chronological order of creation. But when you go through the book of Joshua, and you have in mind the order of creation, you'll see that this statement and the land had rest from war is like the Sabbath rest of God on the seventh day. 
See, for six days, God worked, he created, and the seventh, he rested, and he calls it Sabbath day, seventh day, the day of rest. And it says, and the land rested from war. You see, that word rest is the same with the rest found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. And as if the author is telling us that God is trying to repeat his work of creation in the land of Canaan. In fact, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, it's reminiscent of day two. God parted the land and the waters. That's day two. So after they crossed the Jordan River, they ate of the first produce, day three. God created the vegetation. And then you find that in chapter 8, Joshua, to conquer the southern kingdom, he, he commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. You remember that? That's day 4, when God created two great lights, the sun and the moon. And then on day 7, God said, if this is holy, God rested. And it says, the Bible says in summary, and the land had rest from war. What tells me is that God is recreating his Eden. So Eden was created in the first six days. And here in Canaan, God is recreating again his dwelling place. For this to work, for God to bless the people of Israel, he must come down and dwell with man again. Let me show you how this works here. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And God rested from his work, and he made the seventh day holy, Sabbath. Here's what it says in Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken. Because in Genesis chapter 1, when he created the final creation that is humankind, he said, have dominion over the earth and over every living things. It is like God saying here, Joshua eleven twenty three. Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken. Joshua had dominion over all the land of Canaan. See, this is a repetition of God's creation here. This is Sabbath. This is rest. This is the seventh day. I remember when I bought the house, and I went there for the first time. It was empty. There was a giddy, happy feeling I had when I entered the house. And I felt a sense of peace. And for several days and nights, I slept there alone. It's funny, when the house is empty and there's no furniture, even the slightest sound can create ripples of sound that bounces on the walls that makes you think there's somebody inside the house except you. Y you know that? So I was there for several days, and I was sleeping, and I know that I snore, uh, but suddenly, uh, some nights, I would wake up because I thought I heard someone speaking. So I, I would say that probably, I, you know, my snore would bounce off the walls. And so what I do, I stand up in the middle of the night, I go to every corner of the house, and I pray. I want to make sure there's nobody in there except me. You know, we're talking about ghost spirits, whatever you call them. I tried to, because if not, that's going to be trouble if, when my family comes. See, if God is to reign in the land and dwell in the land, he must be the only God in there. So God instructed all the Canaanites, sorry, all the Israelites to cleanse the land from the inhabitants of the land, from idolatry and all those bad practices. This is the same thing. Uh, that happened in the land of Eden. It started, the Garden of Eden started with something that's good. In fact, God said in the last day, it was very good. And so Adam and Eve was there in the garden, but suddenly they rebelled against God. They sinned. 
And so God placed a curse on them and exiled them from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had a son, had two sons, by the way. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his own brother. And the same thing happened. The rest of the seventh day was broken because of their sin. And this is what God said to Cain when he confronted him in chapter 4, verse 11. He said, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So the rest was broken and man becomes a restless wanderer. Say after me, restless. We are all restless. See, we are the picture of Cain. Humanity become, became like Cain, a picture of someone who is restless. A restless wanderer. After Cain, people multiplied, and the curse stayed in effect. And then you go further in chapter 5 of Genesis, and you read this very interestingly. It says, Genesis 5, 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. Now, back then, they, they lived long. So, Pastor Joseph's still young with this standard. So, it says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. Noah literally means rest. Very interesting. So, his father said, he named his son Noah rest because he said he will comfort us from the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Still, the curse is there in effect. And they are wanderers. They are restless. They have no rest. So when Noah was born, they were expecting something must, must have come. Maybe God has a plan for the world. Maybe he will give us rest. Well, the next thing you know, in Genesis chapter 9, there was a flood. Noah built an ark together with his family, and there was a flood. Now, again, this is counterintuitive. Where's the rest that God has promised through Noah? In fact, if you understand it properly, it's like a reset of creation. So God started with nothing in the beginning. If you picture Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, there was nothing. There was just water, and there was darkness. That's it. And you think of the flood, everything went back to the water and darkness flood. It rained for 150 days, and everything, living thing, died, except Noah and his family. So it was a reset. That was rest for the earth. Now, the conquest, no, before I forget, in, in July 1 to 4, we'll be going to Noah's Ark. We will uh, see and visit the Ark. It's in Kentucky. So if you haven't signed up, please sign up, because we will see Noah's Ark in there. Right. Now, the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of Canaan was like God choosing another Eden, was creating another Eden. So again, we're asking, how will God bless the whole world? How will God bless the whole families of the earth? God will bless all the families of the earth if he blesses Abraham and he puts Abraham inside the promised land to eliminate all the idol worshiping in the land. And that's the only time he can bless the land. How is God going to bless? Now, you have to remember from the very beginning of Joshua chapter 1, God laid out his plan. This is what he said in Joshua 1 verse 13. He said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord, your God, is providing you a place of, 
Say that with me. Rest. The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, and I will give you this land. The whole point, the whole plan of God, from beginning from Adam and Eve, who were placed in the curse, Cain, who were placed in the curse, Noah also, and the succeeding generations were placed on the curse, is to give us, the people of the earth, rest. That's the whole point of the promised land, rest. But when you read the latter portion of the scriptures, again, it may sound counterintuitive. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. This is what it says. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We're talking about rest and restlessness. Did Joshua really complete the rest that God intended for the people of God? The answer is no. That's not the end of God's plan. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, there's another rest. That means the rest that Joshua provided in the land of Canaan points to another rest, the ultimate rest that God is providing for his people, even for us. For asking the question, what is God's plan for the world? And how do I fit in? I don't fit in the land of Canaan because I'm not an Israelite, but I fit in this final rest that God is preparing for me. See, the problem with Eden why God destroyed it through the flood is because of evil. Evil entered the world because two couple, that couple, sinned against God. They rebelled against God. And because of evil, God placed a curse on mankind. That is the consequence of evil. Very interestingly, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of this evil. This evil is not just something that you can eliminate by destroying it violently. It's something that you cannot destroy by fire or by flood or by water or for whatever means. Because evil has sipped in the heart of people. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 17 verse 9. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And rhetorically he said, who can understand it? In another version in ESV it says, it's desperately sick. It's desperately sick. It means like it's cancer, it's incurable. It's deep in the heart of men. And therefore, what that means is that even if God puts another Garden of Eden and puts mankind in there, it's not the cure for the world's curse because evil is still in the He must give men a new heart. That's the whole idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the real cure. So we're talking about the real cure for this curse. I caught my daughter the other day uh, playing with water. I always tell her, tell her that she should not play with water. S when, when we were not looking, she would get a cup and fill the cup with drinking water, and then she would spill the water on the sofa, or sometimes on the table, and she would say, laundry, <laughs> Papa, laundry. <laughs> so the other day, I caught her playing with water again, so immediately I said, ah, baby, you, you should not play with water. What did I tell you? And she looked at me, and she said, Jaja. I mean, Jaja was not there to begin with. I didn't teach her that. She, I love my daughter. She's cute and all, but she too is a sinner. I know every parent would agree with me. We all love our kids, but they're not perfect. Would you say yes to that? No one is perfect. This curse, this evil has plagued us like a malady. See, we're all Cain. We are in the same condition. We are restless and broken because the world is broken. 
the Jews have a name for it. They call it Tikkun Olam or repairing the world because they understand that God is repairing the world. There's something sinister about this world. There's something wrong and broken about this world. We are all messed up as creation of God. I was watching the other day, and there was this news about this art teacher from Trafalgar Middle School. And she was fired from her position as an art teacher. And she said that, uh, the school said that she taught her students about her being a pansexual. And she said this, and I quote, I was just being myself, unquote. What is a pansexual? A cisgender, normal people, just like you and me, are attracted to the opposite sex. That means I have mustache, I have beard. I'm not attracted to the guy with the mustache and the beard. I'm cisgender. They call us cisgender. We're attracted to the opposite sex. A gay person is attracted to the same sex. So mustache, beard, attracted to the mustache and beard. Are you with me? A pansexual is attracted to anyone, whether he is heterosexual or gay. A pansexual is attracted to anyone. And the art teacher is a pansexual. So she was fired. Are we broken or what? She's teaching middle schools. Many years ago, I visited Cambodia. Cambodia is a small country in Southeast Asia. Ever, anyone have been to Cambodia? Cool. It's a beautiful country. Uh, it's a third world country, though. It's very popular for the ruins. Uh, one of those is Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat is a, a palace of uh, an ancient civilization. And if you go there, you see that the palace is magnificent. Although it's old in ruins, but it's magnificent. They're also known for the killing fields. In 1975, Pol Pot was the revolutionary leader who imported communism from China, brought it to Cambodia, and murdered approximately 3 million people in cold blood. 3 million people. And he spread the killings all over Cambodia. The capital is Phnom Penh. I went there, and I saw the killing fields. I even saw bones and skulls of people who died there. And then I traveled to the north. I went to Shamrip, where you find the Angkor Wat. It's beautiful. If you have a chance, you, have, you can go there and see it for yourself. When I was in Angkor Wat, I was taking a picture of the beautiful ruins. I was approached by a man whom I realized was a pimp. And he said to me in broken English, you want girls? You want girls? He was offering me girls as young as 10 years old. And he said, one girl, five dollar. One girl, five dollar. And then he's trying to say that if I get to, I get a discount. Immediately, I thought, maybe he's scamming me. So he said, where are the girls? And they pointed to a bunch of little girls with makeup and short skirts playing under the tree. It was real in Cambodia. Are we broken or what? Did you know that 80 miles from here, northwest of Broward County, there's a village called the Miracle Village. The Miracle Village is where all the sexual offenders live together. And there are hundreds of them. And these people, majority of them, are pedophiles. That means one time or another, they have abused, raped, molested children. And they are there in Okeechobee. Are we broken or what? I think the malady is real. Evil is real. It's in the hearts of people. That's why when John the Baptist preached about repentance, he preached about repentance to his heart. 
and he was pointing to Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God that was slain for the world. That was John the Baptist was preaching. He was preaching with his heart until finally he was taken in prison. And in prison, his doubts mounted up, and he started asking, what is Jesus doing? What was he, what was he waiting for? When is he going to make a move to start a revolution? And when he couldn't contain it anymore, he asked Jesus through his disciples, he asked, are you the one? Or should we wait for another one? The first time I know Jesus was when I was in Sunday school. I was seven. My teacher would tell us stories after stories about Jesus, how powerful he is, how he calmed the storm, he walked on water, how he exercised demons, he raised the dead, and my favorite part, he multiplied bread. That was my favorite part. To me, Jesus was a superhero. He's, like, uh, he's not like Donald Duck and Goofy, no. To me, Jesus was like Superman and Batman and Spider-Man. He can do a lot of great things. And that means when I was small, I'd go to school, and when I have exam, I don't have to review because I know that if I pray, Jesus will answer my prayers, and I will get 100. Everyone, anyone had the same experience? The good news is sometimes it works. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> many times it doesn't work. It didn't work. I failed many times. And then I realized that my relationship with Jesus, the way I know him, is not how he is, really. My relationship with him is characterized like how I order steak in a, in a restaurant. The way I want, when I want, what I want. See, John the Baptist had the same misinterpretation and expectation of who Jesus was. He thought that Jesus was a revolutionary Messiah who will bring back the kingdom of God by arms. And this is what Jesus replied to John, Matthew 11, 4 and 5. Jesus answered them. He said, go and tell John what you hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's very unlikely. I mean, it's almost counterintuitive. People were expecting that Jesus will raise an army to topple down the Roman government, but he did not. In fact, he was after the lame, the blind, the poor, the deaf, the dead, the lepers. What is this? What was Jesus doing? In fact, he invites people who are like that. He was not after the Pharisees. He was after, you know, the, the, the words of the people, the, those who were neglected in society. But then you find the summary of or the explanation of Jesus' answer in verses 28 and 29. He said this. He said, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you, say it with me, rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We're not talking about your body. We're not talking about being tired from work. We're talking about rest for your souls. That means he invites those who labor and heavy laden or those who are, are restless. And when Jesus said this, there's nothing more fitting than to think when God cursed the ground and Adam and Eve were forced out of the Garden of Eden. There's nothing more fitting to think than Cain when he was cursed and he became a restless wanderer. 
God is inviting people to rest. Verse 29, it says, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. It's not your physical body, it's your soul. Because to be cursed by God, to become a restless wanderer, is to be away from the presence of God. And the whole thing is defined by restlessness. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a situation where you cannot sleep, you cannot eat, and you don't know why? All you know is that there's something you're looking for, a purpose, a significance, a reason for your life. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in a relationship or you're in a work environment that you didn't like, and you're thinking every day it's like a rut. It, it comes and goes, the same thing. Day in and day out, you're in the same situation and you don't want it. And you're restless. You're tired from this. Are you in the situation where you almost drag your body from the bed every morning so that you can go to work, but you don't like it? There's nothing that defines it but the word restlessness. See, the invitation of Jesus perfectly fits us. He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, who, you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This to me is like a picture of the prodigal son who after disappointing his father, he went to the country and spent all his possessions. And then suddenly he finds himself penniless. He was broken. He was restless. And when in he, he was in that condition, he, he began to employ, he was feeding the pigs. The very Jews hate to eat because they are unclean. As if Jesus in this parable is saying, this is the consequence of being away from the presence of God. The most degrading condition, position that you will be in, away from the presence of God, you will be broken. This is what the parable is saying. And like the Father, Jesus amplifies the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. As if the Father is saying, come home. See, the invitation of Jesus is not come to me, but first you must put your act together. It's not come to me, but first you have to be, change your behavior. It's not come to me, but first you have to be worthy. It's come to me. In fact, the only qualification to coming to Jesus is that you have to be broken. Because if you're not broken, there's nothing to fix, then it's not for you. But if you're restless, if you're broken, if you are tired, Jesus is inviting you to come. David wrote in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. He said, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, my God. He said, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Brothers and sisters, if this is you, I'd like you to open your heart. I invite you to open your heart and talk to God. Go to him like a child because I promise you, he will never say no. I want to pray for you. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. If this is you, I want to pray for you. With you quietly, as we are, our, our eyes are closed, would you quietly raise your hand and I want to pray for you. Would you do that? If you feel that you're restless, 
if you feel that you're tired for whatever reason, doesn't mean that you are a sinner. It doesn't mean that you are, are bad. It just means that you are tired. I'm going to pray for you. Raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. You may put them down. Father, you're a good God. And your heart has never changed. You're always for us. There are so many things that plague our condition. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's our sickness. And many of us, Father, are are so tired of our condition. So tired of where we are. Father, would you look down upon us? Would you look at our condition? Father, will you heal our bodies? Will you heal our sickness? Will you look down to our souls and give us respite? Give us rest. Father, we are tired, but because of you, because of your invitation, we come to you. Because of your invitation, we come to you like a child coming to you, coming back to you, coming home. There's a song that says, Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. The song says, Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. Let's sing.